Okay, so this is a great opportunity to clarify if I am Sam or Samantha. Because I was born Samantha, obviously, it's on my birth certificate, and I was Sam my whole life until my oldest brother, Rob Shine, had his first son and told me that he was gonna name him Samuel. So I think my very first question was, well then, then who, what is my name gonna be? Because I'm Sam Shine. And uh, Rob said, well, you can be Samantha. So I went ahead and transitioned my name for you, Sam Shine, so you could go through and be the second Sam Shine to go through Zionsville schools. And then I was Samantha through um, college and working, and then I went to law school and in my professional world. And then we moved back to um, Zionsville, and on my name tag, it said at ZPC, Sam, Sam Spencer. So now I'm back to Sam. So anyway, I, you can call me whatever you want, except Sammy. I don't want to be called Sammy. <laughs> I grew up during uh, when Days of Our Lives was uh, very popular. So if any of you know what I'm referencing, you understand why I don't want that name. Well, Scott mentioned I do have three kids. Steve and I were married for nine years before our oldest, Henry, entered the world. And um, like probably all parents, our life before children was so vastly different than it is now. Um, and it's incredible. Most, you know, one of the most significant things that have changed is travel. I loved traveling before kids. And I would jump on any opportunity I could to go somewhere new or somewhere that I've already been. I was a very efficient packer. I really, um, I thought very highly of myself that I could take a small bag and spend a whole week abroad and have, um, and, and have everything that I needed. And so now when we travel, our minivan is full and we have a rooftop carrier and we only have three kids. And everything in our minivan, we need. I assure Steve that we need all of these other things to make it work when we travel. So if we do go somewhere, uh, it, it better be good. Um, and so we went to Florida this March and actually came back early because it, it was not, it did not go well. Um, but one thing that we do is we take our kids to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan to a camp that Steve and I went to when we were students within our varsity and also when we were staff. It's a really special place to us. It is, um, it is 10, well, it's eight hours away, but it takes us about 10 to 11 hours to get there. So it's a whole day trip. And it's on Lake Huron. The water is crystal clear. There are vast woods and hiking, and there's a large beach for our kids to play on. They host a family camp. Um, it is truly untouched. The, the outside beauty is untouched, but all of the accommodations have also been untouched for about 50 years. Some of the buildings might actually fall down here soon. So, um, and that, that is the truth. Um, we don't get very good sleep when we go there because we're all sharing the same room. We don't have, not the whole camp, let me be clear. We each have our own room in a lodge, but we do share communal bathrooms with all the other families. In the lodge, there's no air conditioning. The food is, um, it's terrible. It leaves a lot to be desired. If we get a couple pieces of fruits and vegetables a day, uh, we feel lucky. Um, and you know, when all of this said, um, people ask us about, you know, how was your vacation? What did you do? And we tell them, and not everybody, but a lot of people look at us like we're crazy. Like, why would you spend all of this money and you know, all of your time off, or one of your weeks off, 
up at a camp that's really uncomfortable, although it's beautiful, but it's really uncomfortable, and you come back tired, and you um, are hungry, um, and, you know, we go because God has met us in a profound way every single time we've gone. He has when we were students, when we were staff, and now as we are parents. Um, there's something about its simplicity. Probably there, there's very limited cell phone reception, um, its natural beauty, and just having space to connect with God that is so incredibly rich that we will continue to go. And some people just still think it's foolishness. And see, this is what we're talking about today. We're talking about Christianity and how the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have now found ourselves in 1 Corinthians as we're reading through the New Testament. And this is, um, we're gonna be in the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians well, to be fair, he actually wrote other letters to the Corinthians, but they didn't make it into the Bible, and so I think that's a great question to ask Jerry his first Sunday back. How do they decide what goes in the Bible? I won't be answering that today. Um, but we're gonna be in verse 10, and we're gonna go ahead and read all the way through chapter one. You can pull out your phones or your Bibles and read along with me. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, who is Peter, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ, oh, and I'm, excuse me, I'm skipping to 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, thank you for revealing yourself through scripture to us. Holy Spirit, guide my words, direct all of our thoughts to what you want to teach us today. And we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So in Paul's day, Corinth was a prominent city in Greece, in part because of its location. It was on an isthmus. I'll say that one time, never again. It was about four to five miles wide. So anyone traveling from northern to southern Greece had to pass through. And then also, there were two ports, four to five miles apart. And so ships, instead of traveling 300 miles around a dangerous coastline of Greece, would stop, they would car, uh, dolly their ships or their cargo to the other port and take off. So many, many people were traveling through Corinth. And at the time this letter was written, it was probably the wealthiest city in Greece. It was luxurious, it was major, it was a multicultural urban center. It was huge, it was rapidly growing, and it was very diverse. Some have said that, it was, that it's similar to New York City or LA. Um, but in addition to all of its, uh, all of its commercial um, growth, it all, there was quite a bit of idol worship. And to be described as living like a Corinthian referred to somebody who was always intoxicated and living in debauchery. And it also was a center for philosophical thought. And so there was another phrase, he speaks in the Corinthian style. And this would refer to somebody who was very articulate, precise, and colorful in their speech. And these speeches were a large form of entertainment for the church, uh, not for just the church, for all the people. Um, in fact, um, they had theaters that would seat 18,000 people, and they would host people, and they would come in, and they wanted to listen to people speak eloquently and persuasively. And some commentators have said, that um, the value is more in presentation than the content of what was being said. And it's here that we find a vibrant and growing church that Paul planted about five years prior to writing this letter. Paul went to Corinth to preach the gospel and to his amazement, many people came to Christ. And from the introduction of this letter, we know that this is a church full of gifted people. And as we read 1 Corinthians, we learn that this is also a church full of problems. It's almost every conflict, point of contention, or clash that you could possibly think of when you think of what could be going on in a church that's having problems. So chapters one and two talks about party spirit, division, backbiting, there's politicking going on in the church, and we're gonna talk about this today. Chapters two, three, and four, they talk, it talks about worldly wisdom and how does Christianity relate to these secular world trends. Chapters five and six address church discipline. There's a Christian man um, who's having an affair with his stepmother and there's two Christians suing each other in court and so Paul is asking, to what amount of, to what degree can the church discipline its members? To what authority does a church have over its body? Chapter six, there's more discussion of sexual ethics. Chapter seven, divorce. Chapter eight, cultural issues. In chapter 10, there's mistakes and fighting about the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11 goes into gender roles and the roles of men and women. In chapter 12, tongues, healings, miracles. It's all here. And you know what, these aren't just ancient issues. These are issues that churches still struggle with today. 
In the Scott and Stan show, Stan described this as a contemporary letter, and I couldn't agree with him more, because when I read through 1 Corinthians, the application feels pretty clear, other than some other you know, books of the Bible. And so, um, you know, of all of these issues that were reported to Paul, he first, before he goes into anything else, he addresses the divisions and the factions that are happening in the church. Remember, some are saying, I follow Paul, and others are saying, I follow Apollos. You see, Paulus, Apollos came in, and he took over the church from Paul. And so we can fully appreciate what a transition of church leadership does to its members and how divisions could form. And others are saying, I follow Peter. And others are saying, I follow Christ. And in verse 10, Paul starts the actual body of the letter. This is how he starts it. And he urges the church in the name and the power and authority of Jesus that all of them agree, which literally means saying the same thing, that there be no divisions among them, that they become united, which could be translated as united, united um, in mind and purpose. And the same word is used in Mark chapter 1, verse 19, when it's referencing uh, mending nets. And I'd like this, I, I really appreciate that image of the church body being a net, and what's happened is there have been divisions, and the net is broken. And Paul is calling to the members, and, and he's imploring them to mend the net. The people in the church are fighting in part because they've aligned themselves with different Christian leaders. And so Paul asks three rhetorical questions, all implying the answer no. He says, is Christ divided? No. So how can his people be? Was Paul crucified for you? No. Neither Paul nor any other human leader was crucified for the world's sins. And baptism is in the name and authority of Jesus alone. And it's noteworthy. You see, Paul isn't just siding with one faction and, or even saying, well, this group has this part right and this group has this part right. He is getting above the divisions and above the politicking and asking the church to keep first things first. And to be clear, the unity that Paul is seeking is not addressing everyday matters. And um, he's not uh, requiring a complete uniformity of action. And we know this because in chapters 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the uh, diversity of spiritual gifts. And he says that that's a blessing to the church. What Paul is speaking to is he is saying that the church must be unified in the nature of the gospel itself. Their understanding of what that means for them as a body of believers. And here we have our first application point. We too can align ourselves with Christian leaders or worship pastors or authors or celebrity pastors or even just certain factions in the church. And with these hot button issues like baptism or spiritual gifts or the roles of men and women, just to name a few, Paul is reminding the church that the focus of the Christian proclamation must remain centered on the message of the crucifixion rather than baptism or any other doctrine, no matter how important that doctrine is in its own right. So what if we assume a posture of, I'm probably right, but I might be wrong? What if with these controversial issues, if we are believing that we are right, what if we approached those that we differed, had different opinions with, of, I, I think I'm right, but I might be wrong. We might be more able to engage and to listen 
and to keep first things first. You see, additionally, when we boast in mere human leaders, when we align ourselves with a faction or a human leader, what we are actually saying is that I have the right understanding of who is the best leader, that I have the most knowledge because I understand the correct theology and the correct doctrine. I have the corner on the market of what is right. And Paul is trying to help these Christian believers see that aligning themselves with a leader first and not the gospel actually stands in direct contradiction to the gospel. And this is because when we are driven to the cross, we are humbled. We are not arrogant and bullheaded in our opinions. When we recognize the cross and all that it stands for, the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus for sinners in need of salvation, that we are vindicated by his resurrection and exaltation, then we have identified the fundamental truths that must make up the, form, the core of our Christian faith. Disunity in the church remains one of the greatest scandals which compromises its witness today. In my experience in ministry and afterwards, so many of my conversations have revealed a great skepticism toward Christianity because often those that, are, um, that would not identify as Christians feel as though Christians approach them as if they have the corner on the market as to what's right, that they're not willing to listen to them, and also that Christians can't seem to get along with one another. And it's so hypocritical from the outside looking in. The church should be a place where people who have no other natural reason of association can come together in love and unity in Jesus, and yet it remains one of the most segregated uh, places and a place of disunity in the world. In verse 18, Paul shifts the focus of the passage from the divisions and the factions in the church to the greater theological issue that's underlying these problems. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 19, Paul continues by quoting from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In other words, the message of the cross is nothing other than God's way of doing what he said he would do. By the cross, God sets aside and shatters all human pretensions to strength and wisdom. Paul does not say, for the foolishness of the cross to those who are perishing, but to us is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's confusing, hold on. What Paul does not say is that for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God. He says it is the power of God. And later in verse 24, he does say Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. But this, I don't believe, is a slip on Paul's part. Paul does not want the, Christ, uh, the Corinthians to believe that the gospel is simply a new philosophical system, that it's a supremely wise system that just trumps all other knowledge out there because it's far, far more than that. It is the power of God. Where human wisdom fails to deal with human need, God himself takes action. We are incapable of dealing with our sin. We are incapable of reconciling ourselves to God, but where we are, we are incapable, God is powerful. 
Human folly and human wisdom are equally unable to achieve what God has accomplished on the cross. He continues, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? You see, wisdom in this time is not the wisdom um, that we've understood to be a practical skill, um, like living under the fear of God, maybe as you would understand it reading Proverbs. And it's also not just a combination of intuition and people smarts, as it frequently would be understood today. You see, wisdom in this time was understood as a public philosophy. It was a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life, that ordered choices, values, and priorities to those who adopted it. So the wise person was someone who could make sense out of life, death, and the universe. So if you can explain life, then you can control it. And this is no different than today. Paul is speaking the Corinthian language as he says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe who is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? As some who are listening to the letter, the original hearers would say, oh, well, I know where that wise man is. He's at the corner of the street, and I just heard him talking earlier today, telling me this public philosophy that I should adopt. And I know where the teacher of the law is. He's over there, and the debater of this age is coming to one of our theaters this weekend. In fact, for these people, the original hearers, when he's pointing out who these people are, it's probably some of the people that have helped develop the belief system of the people in the church. And just as they knew who Paul was talking about, I think we do as well. We listen to a lot of noise on how to do our lives. Different than the Corinthians who are fascinated with eloquence and persuasion, and that's the people, those were the people that they were drawn to. I think, um, and I'll speak to my generation, I, I, I wonder if this is true for everyone, but um, it seems that the more of a celebrity presence a person has, the more credibility they have, which is incredible, actually. And so if somebody is famous, they can post an Instagram video about how to, um, you know, what to eat. And we listen to them because they're famous. Or um, they're gonna tell us, you know, a celebrity may tell us how to parent or what we should be giving our money to. And there's nothing wrong with their platform, that's not what I'm saying. But when it becomes, when it starts to become a part of our belief system is when we need to question who, what, uh, what are the messages, you know, who is my wise man? Who is the scholar that's telling me what, what to do? Who is the debater of this age that I am listening to? Because remember, what God is saying, or, yeah, what Paul is saying and God, is that God made foolish the worldly wisdom. Because proclaiming Christ crucified, he says this in verse 23, is nothing that the wise man, the scribe, or the debater would have ever dreamed up despite all of their worldly wisdom. To those who don't know the story of Jesus, it is a shockingly odd message, isn't it? One commentator said that in the first century, Christ crucified must have sounded like frozen steam or hateful love, only far, far more shocking. For many Jewish people, the long-expected Messiah was to come in splendor and glory he had to begin his reign with uncontested power. 
And additionally, in Deuteronomy, God declared that anyone who hangs in shame on a tree stands under God's curse. So a crucified Messiah was the ultimate scandal for the Jewish people. And the Greeks certainly could not regard Christ crucified any more highly either. They exalted reason and public philosophy, not faith in public criminals. And the Gentiles wrote it off as dangerous and almost deranged. And so the message of the cross was dismissed. But in the wisdom of God, Jesus was the promised Messiah. And he was also the suffering servant. Jesus was the reigning king who claimed that all authority was his. But he was also the fulfillment of centuries of sacrifices, all pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which alone could deal with the world's sin. Jesus did die under God's curse, but not in an account of his own sin, but on an account of the world's sins. And in God's power, Jesus was raised from the dead. And Paul continues, he says, God's foolishness is wiser than any human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than any human strength. And I so easily forget this. I have a habit of seeing myself as a plate spinner, and my family can attest to this, they're here, (laughs) that I must keep all the plates spinning all the time. My marriage, my children's development and well-being. (laughs) Sorry, all the plates, including my talk. Um, My work, which which is real, my work, my friendships, and my household, right? All these things that I think if I don't, if I stop spinning them, then everything I cherish is gonna come crashing down. And somehow this belief, or some of you are thinking my ego complex, which I don't necessarily disagree with, has worked its way into my theology as well, causing me to worry that my standing with God is somehow dependent upon me. Am I growing in Christ enough Am I sinning too much? Am I doing kingdom work? These are the questions that keep me up at night. Ask my home group. (laughs) Then my efforts for God transition into a way to earn his favor, to earn God's favor, to earn the favor of people. Ultimately, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to prevent judgment and rejection. And perhaps this is, being, uh, this is a result of growing up in a world that's saying to me and to many of us that I can have it all if I just work hard enough. That if I find the right career that would be perfect to be working all the time and to raise a, and to have my family, then it'll be okay. That if I can find the right mentors, the person who's doing it well, who's just doing great at work and thriving at home, then I will be okay. If I can just adopt the right life strategy, so I'll read all these books to figure out how should I be doing life to make it work. If I can make every 15 minutes of my life count, right? This is the narrative. And God's word is a refreshing reality check. That the message of the cross to us who are being saved is the power of God. The message is that I am sinful and I deserve to be removed from God's presence, but that Jesus died so that I could be accepted. That it is not my good deeds, that it is not my righteousness, it is not my holiness that puts me in right relationship with God. In fact, Paul points out that God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 
God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. In verse 30, he says, Jesus became for us wisdom from God and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in some ways, this almost feels too simple. You know, I ask, well, shouldn't I have to work harder? Or certainly there are boxes that I need to check to become right with God. And the answer is no. I am free to stop spinning the plates to earn God's approval. And in fact, if left unchecked, my best deeds and my best performances are many ways my way of trying to become my own savior. That the message of the cross is not something to which we may add human wisdom in any form or human effort and thereby make it superior. And I'll say it again. The message of the cross is not something to which we can add human wisdom or human effort to make it superior. It is not the gospel plus good works. It is not the gospel plus going to Sunday gathering. It is not the gospel plus having the right doctrine. It is not the gospel plus being a really good person and trying really hard. It is not the gospel plus. And why is it this way? It's that so no one may boast before God because that's it, it's finished. This is great news. The message of the cross is that Christ alone is the atonement for our sins. It provides relief from my striving and provides permission to simply be in Christ, to live into my authentic self before Jesus, to let Jesus be my righteousness, not me, to let Jesus be my holiness, not me. That when we become a Christian, what matters is Christ's past, not mine. Not my name, but Christ's name. Not my record, but Christ's record. And when we live this way, not only does it provide me freedom, but these controversial issues in the church are simply viewed in a different light, aren't they? Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. And if we boast, we boast in Christ alone. Let us pray. Loving Father, thank you for seeing us as we are right here today. Thank you for your faithful pursuit of us. I ask that this body of believers be one that lives in the way that Paul is urging the Corinthians. Thank you that we don't have to prove our worth to you by our good deeds and our actions. Thank you for the gift of Jesus and the gift of an eternal relationship with you. Amen.